Welcome to the 43rd episode of the New Ventures podcast. I'm your host Sanjoy Sanyal, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judd Business School. I host the New Ventures podcast to help people starting climate initiatives learn from others who are already progressed in their paths. In this episode we continue to deep dive into the early stage climate innovation system in the United Kingdom. Many of you might have read my LinkedIn article last week about the importance of climate innovation and in particular the importance of frugal climate innovation. Our guest for today to discuss is Mr. Angus Bantakwood, the senior manager at Carbon Trust. Welcome Angus. Hi Sanjoy, thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast. Good to be here. Angus, we've been talking about this early stage climate innovation ecosystem here for the last few episodes. We've had Chris Coleridge of Carbon 13, we've had Nick Light of the Green Angel Syndicate, we had Navid Chaudhary of Greenhouse. So you'll be really our fourth guest on this topic. And one of the interesting things that we can talk about in this podcast is how does Carbon Trust help large organizations and government departments effectively engage in climate innovation. So I'll start by asking you that in the world where top consulting companies are all setting up their climate and ESG practices carbon trust which is quite old actually and is quite unique as well right yeah yeah <laughs> great yeah thanks again so certainly the carbon trust was set up in 2001 by the uh, uk government initially i would say it's uh, it's in its prime let's say <laughs> we're mission driven organization we've been tasked by when we were set up by the uk government to accelerate and support businesses transitioning towards a decarbonized future so we focus on businesses and industries our sister organization set up at the same time was the energy saving trusts and that was set up to decarbonize the domestic sector in the uk since then we've uh, evolved quite a way Uh, we've become an independent organization but we're still mission driven we're not for dividends company essentially allows us to make profit and on the commercial arm of our activities and these profits are then recycled back into our mission so today we have around 400 experts working in the climate space we're in about eight offices throughout the world UK South Africa Beijing Mexico and the Netherlands and that's that's basically where we're at today obviously you've already brought out your global approach but there's this also something fairly unique about your approach as well right perhaps you could start by giving us an overview of that yeah so we work in a, a range of different spaces i think as i've said before we were really set up from the inception to make kind of business sense of climate change so we work practically with businesses a sort of friendly body to support decarbonization we work in a bunch of areas very relevant to our skill sets the first being i guess corporate sustainability through our business services and this includes services uh, supporting companies to reduce their emissions through a science-based target approach to net zero to monitoring re- reducing their emissions we work in green finance with a sort of comprehensive advisory uh, and impact assessment services for green bonds and loans as well as climate risk exposure assessments and and target settings we do assurance and labeling so we work in carbon footprinting and standards so carbon neutral certificates we start working more on things like uh, zero waste to landfill standards and then finally i suppose the most relevant one to the discussion we're having today is we work in the programs and innovation space where we undertake various actions to kind of predominantly work on innovation towards supporting energy transition particularly in cities and regions energy systems so grid based balancing mechanisms offshore wind and uh, energy access as well 
And you've already mentioned that Carbon Trust is a large organization, several global offices, 400 experts. So it'll help our audience to understand your own role in this organization. Yeah, so mine, I work in the particularly on the program Transforming Energy Access, which is a UK government program we'll get into. Um, I've been at the Carbon Trust now for nine years. Previously to that, I had a PhD I acquired from the University of Exeter in renewable energy, where I was a researcher. I joined the Carbon Trust originally working in uh, wave and tidal technology, actually, working in innovation space there in Scotland, and had since sort of pivoted over to moving on the energy access space. And that's where I am. Well, that's great, actually, because, you know, you've worked in two areas, which I think are very interesting. One is offshore wind, which people all over the world want to know about. And the other is, of course, energy access, where the UK has played a stellar role, actually, in promoting uh, decentralized solutions in Africa. So let's probably start with the energy access topic. And the platform that you have, we know, is transforming energy access. How does it help promote innovation? And what is the role that Carbon Trust plays? Sure. Yeah. As you say, the two different spaces there, energy access and offshore wind are really very, very different types of innovation space. I'll try to do them both justice here. So what we're doing in the um, Transform Energy Access platform, this is an innovation fund that's really been set up by the UK government with an ambition to unlock energy access for poor communities and small enterprises, um, predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia and the Indo-Pacific, really. So matched to where we see the energy deficits, really. It um, started in 2015 and is now designed to run out until uh, March 2026. To date, we've supported around 620 unique organizations. So it's a fairly large, sort of broad-reaching program. We have targets to sort of reach at least 25 million people with energy access by the end of our program. To date, we're on about 15.8 million. So it's had a a lot of high impact among the international climate finance programs of the UK government. We're probably hitting well above our kind of our budget contribution, I suppose. To date, we've managed to support almost 100,000 people with sustainable long-term jobs, clean energy space market, and we've managed to leverage fairly substantial amounts of private sector funding as well, around 890 million pounds, and mitigated about 1.3 million tons of of CO2 avoided as well, with a target to go up to two and a half million. So as a program, how we promote energy access, I guess the UK government is providing this grant funding for partners to undertake a wide range of of activities, sort of from an academic innovation perspective, you could say that we're supporting the enabling of energy access development from a sort of systems perspective. And and it's interesting coming from my background, uh, which is much more based in the UK innovation space, where most of the innovation work that we do is being very kind of technology focused in the UK. Working in energy access, you see that there's a a lot broader range of challenges and we've actually been empowered to use different levers to try and solve some of those solutions. We look at the main core areas, I suppose, where we do standard, I guess you'd call it standard technology kind of widget development where we kind of come up with technology solutions that can help unlock energy access. We also work with um, novel businesses and finance models to try and unlock energy access. We work on developing skills and capabilities that are needed to support the energy access transition and and provide clean energy access to support sort of SDG 7, sustainable energy. And then finally, we kind of have a fairly large portfolio of projects that look at what we call kind of market building approaches. And, And you might think of them as being a little bit above market in terms of they support activities that individual organizations would struggle to catalyze on their own so things like supporting the establishment of trades associations or standards and things like that where we can basically really help to kind of uh, legitimize a sector or a market where possible the carbon trust role in this we you know we work as 
the delivery consortium for the UK government, essentially working with experts from the University of Cape Town and Energy for Impact as our partners within that. And we essentially work as the facilitating coordinator between the other direct funded projects um, from the UK government, as well as our own sort of downstream partners to really maximize the impacts of the program. And that's one of the things that kind of makes it a bit novel, which I'll get into more detail on. For the innovative business model and innovative product testing, so do you have a like a call? Is it like a challenge fund? We have a range of different interventions that we undertake. So we look at technology accelerators that are kind of more focused solution providing innovation activity where we know what the area of challenge is. So we might be looking at mini grids or at zero emission generators, for example. And in those categories, what we'll do is we'll convene experts within the sector, whether it's mini grid developers, people around the space, to try and work out what they think the challenges and problems are. And then we'll make targeted initiatives to go and try and solve them. Quite similar to the offshore wind model, actually, which we'll get to. We also do open calls, which are kind of broader, where we know that there are some problems that need to be solved. We're looking for kind of a wider range of solutions. So we have several open calls in available. One of them is the Powering Renewable Energy Opportunities program. Uh, another one is through the Innovate UK's Energy Catalyst, which um, FC Derek puts funding towards as well. And I guess that's more of a kind of classical high volume light touch technology innovation grant funding type program there's open calls so the uk government has supported actually several innovation initiatives in the area of energy access right we've had podcasts we've had people from the gsma mobile for development utilities innovation fund uh, we also i also am familiar with the africa enterprise challenge fund how do you kind of see your initiative in the midst of these initiatives yeah, that's, that's a good question, Sandra. And I did listen to the GSM uh, a, uh, podcast. It was very good. I think there's a few things that spring to mind, really. Um, obviously, we don't have an agenda in, the, in what we're supporting in terms of particular uptake of technologies or business models. We're working purely from an overseas development assistance perspective, which helps. The catalyzing nature of the program that we're undertaking means that, you know, whereas in many programs, the funding initiatives might sort of build a gasifier or something within sub-Saharan Africa or something, and then leave it to kind of essentially do what it does. Within the T program, much of what we're looking at supporting since we're funded through the Research and Evidence Division of uh, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, so the UK government's arm for development, is about innovation and catalyzing innovation. So many of the benefit realizations you'll see actually occur after the program delivery, really. So I can give you an example of that. For example, one of the things we've supported is the um, establishment of a of an academic network within sub-Saharan Africa through the T Learning Partnership. Um, and that's really worked with sort of seven or eight universities within sub-Saharan Africa that have co-created a master's course um, in energy access, which in its own right is self-sustaining because there's a, now an academic network in, in the energy access space doing this. But also as we see the graduates coming out, you know, towards the end of the project, there was, you know, 100 or 200 graduates being trained but obviously as we sort of extrapolate that into the years and decades to come we could have thousands of graduates and that really helps to sort of create a self-sustaining knowledge base uh, in energy access within the continent so that's a kind of element on the catalyzing side of things of what we do and i think finally as a sort of 
another unique selling point, I guess, in terms of what the Transforming Asia Access program does is we, we have a very integrated delivery consortium. So what we're doing here is consistently trying to create interlinkages within the program to maximize the impacts that are some of the individual parts of the program are more than the individual elements. So for example, we might be providing a, a multitude of service offerings. We could support energy access businesses and stakeholders to maximize their own impact, like the energy catalyst that I mentioned earlier funds organizations and consortiums to resolve technology problems predominantly. When they're doing that, they also receive incubation support for the businesses. We can then link them up with other parts of the program where there might be, for example, access to finance through patient capital or crowdfunding. We can link them up to some of the staffs and employment services that we have within the program. So if they're looking to, for example, enter beachhead markets in Kenya or something like this, we can inter like link them up to the part of the program where we have a, a graduate placement scheme, for example. There's a lot more interlinkage than you'd find within many sort of large programs of this nature. So one of the differences I thought was, and you perhaps alluded to it as well, is the range of technologies that you've supported, right? So you've done mini grids, which you've talked about, but you've also done biomass, tidal, you've focused a lot on productive use, clean cooking, and so on and so forth. Yeah, we're sort of somewhat technology agnostic as a program because it's quite large. We have sister programs Alongside the Transform Energy Access, there is one called Modern Energy Cooking Services, which is looking more at clean cooking. And there's one called Low Energy Inclusive Appliances, Layer, which is looking particularly at appliances. But within the Energy Access, the Transform Energy Access program, we, I'd say we're technology agnostic, but we do tend to lean towards where the solutions are providing themselves. So obviously working solar home systems and mini-grid development are probably two of the more predominant areas. But we do have work that we, <laughs> we do technology innovation in almost every type of technology you can imagine, really, from tidal technology, biomass, cooking, we'll have some off, a wide range and spectrum of different technologies and solutions, energy storage, including novel battery chemistries and pumped hydro type activities, green hydrogen. That's just a sum of them, I suppose, but there's an extensive list, should I say. Sorry. So you have already talked a little bit about what you call T, which is transforming energy access, but you also have the other program, right? Powering renewable energy opportunities. What is your goal there? Yeah, so Powering Renewable Energy Opportunities, PRIO, is itself a subcomponent within the Transforming Energy Access program. It's a sort of open call challenge program focusing on productive use predominantly, really. But probably more than just productive use, it's also looking at sort of embedding local value and employment of energy access solutions across the continent within the delivery. So jointly, it's supported by the UK government and the IKEA Foundation. And today, it's supported around 24 projects in 11 African countries. It's not just demonstrating the innovation, but it's also enabling kind of small to medium enterprises to kind of harness clean energy improvements, uh, to improve incomes, to build climate resilience and reduce sort of reliance on fossil fuel. We've now kind of just finished actually awarding first of five of, of our kind of third wave of projects, which were an additional £5 million into the program. The average project we're seeing at the moment is coming in around £200,000 from about 12 to 15 months. And we expect to see quite a few more coming along, especially in the fields like, such of, uh, as, as e-mobility and a cold chain cooling for food going forwards, actually, as well. So, as I said, technology-wise, we cover a very broad spectrum. <laughs> yeah. And can you tell us, in these three rounds, of some of the interesting projects that you have done? Yeah, certainly. I won't go into all of them, but very happy to... Um, Deep dive on one or two of them. So a good example would be Rome, which used to be called Opibus, which is a, an e-mobility company in uh, Kenya who are creating electric motorbikes or boda bodas as they're called over there. So 
we basically, the model that we use is we have open calls. People have put in applications with a problem statement and we've, we've, we've assessed and awarded to, to that effect. Within the Rome uh, product, I mean, Kenya alone has around 2 million motorbikes and that number is going fast. For anybody that's been to Nairobi, the traffic there is horrific and it's <laughs> it's only growing. You know, the solution we're looking to do is UK is funding to develop the technologies for production of the electric motorbikes within Kenya. This is de-risking the commercial model. Basically, what we're seeing is that the low electricity prices sorry, are helping to reduce and the maintenance and the operating costs. Uh, and that's been shown to provide a 68% lower overall operating costs than the original petrol-based alternatives. We've got lower pollution on the roads, not just CO2, but noise, which, as I said, is a, is a major issue uh, there. Better profitability, local manufacturing, and that's helped to kind of support both aftercare sponsorness of customers as well as the economic benefits within the region as well. That's a project that we've supported to support the development and delivery of those e-motorbikes from Rome. At the end of last year, that Rome entered into a strategic partnership with Uber to deploy 3,000 of these sort of Uber Boda taxis, which is really showing that sort of success of the product already in the market pull for the solution that's been provided really which is nice um, and aside to this i suppose really we're we've also just awarded support for a different two-wheelie mobility product called eco boda which will be looking to demonstrate the viability of micro payments for battery charging to help improve some of the revenue management for drivers because one of the things we do see also is that boda drivers are working with petrol engines they can make sort of small incremental payments for refilling of uh, fuel whereas obviously when you're using electric battery it makes much more sense to fully charge which has its own challenges in terms of cash flow. So there's two innovations there that are slightly interlinked, I'd say, really. Another example is probably SoCoFresh. That's a, an off-grid cold storage play where we're basically providing sort of value-added activities as well as cold storage and a service as a model, as a service model for cooling to enable smallhold farmers to kind of basically drastically reduce some of their post-harvest losses, really, that we're seeing. So we know, for example, that over 50% of Food losses occur with many crops so post-harvesting. The high standards for export really make that you know that percentage higher, obviously, because people want to see good quality. So we can cool the product, obviously, as soon as it gets uh, harvested. That allows farmers to basically better maintain some of their, their crops to increase their revenue stream. So the solution we're providing is a sort of pay-as-you-store solution, really. And that's been piloted in two sites with off-grid cold storage and a market linking platform to help sort of validate a scalable, replicable and financially sustainable business model as well. To date, SoCFresh have been looking at, they've managed to reduce losses to less than 10%, which is great. And the main impacts in the area are that there's been sort of local job creation and higher income for smallhold farmers that we've discussed. We've improved the quality and the quantity of the sort of crops and reduced some of the sort of uh, strain on off the agriculture, on the climate itself and on the environment as a result of that reduction. We're actually, interestingly enough, also awarding SoCFresh a follow-up grant to specifically look at the fishing uh, market as well with a sim essentially a similar type of model to the farming one but, but with fishing where we know that around 27 percent of fish are lost post-harvest much of this is i mean it's mainly going to to sort of more local markets but the transport and the catchment areas can be around 350 kilometers away from the storage so this time it'll be a similar kind of model we're looking to demonstrate the cooling of the service validate some of the site costs the training the O&M, the permits all the kind of other requirements that are needed they'll also be looking at kind of testing and different payment methods as well so like spot payments for shipping aggregation versus delayed payments and that's really already looking to see kind of in 12 months we're a little bit too early to say what the outputs are of that but we're hoping there'll be at least an additional 100 jobs sorry as well as obviously reduced losses
And it would be lovely to hear another example. So this one's a slightly different example, actually, which is a bit left field. And it's a demonstrating a finance facility led by a, an organization called Charm Impact in the UK. So Goggler's latest data shows that around in, in 2021, about 97% of debt investment into the off-grid energy sector went to just 10 large majority foreign-owned businesses. So local enterprises are financially excluded from scaling their businesses due to the lack of available capital sources to grow their high impact, some of these high impact solutions. Now, Charm Impact to a company which provides blended debt finance through impact investment platform that they have. Their blend contains a, a mixture of philanthropic capital in the form of grants and 0% interest loans, as well as private investment capital as well. So some retail as well as this institutional and other stuff. This enables a kind of a risk tolerant management type activity. What we're doing in Prio is we're providing them with funding to essentially facilitate a first loss facility to allow them to reach down to kind of some of these more higher risk, higher risk companies that are normally excluded. So there's conditionality to the funds that are being provided and to the um, the finance facility that's being provided there that's being essentially de-risked by UK government funding to really maximize leverage for, for impact in some of these other off-grid energy companies that are more locally owned. So that's kind of a, another interesting one. It's, we're, again, we're still too early to see what the outputs of that are and the outcomes, but it's uh, looking very interesting so far. It is interesting. I'll try and summarize some of the things that we have learned so far. I'll call out a couple of things which stood out for me. One is at least two approaches that you use. You, you have open call for proposals and projects, and then you go through the process of selection. But you also have working with organizations and identifying problems and then developing a project around that. That's one thing that I took away. The second thing that I took away is, of course, the issue about capacity building. I mean, especially the example that you gave from an education sector, being able to produce over many years graduates who can work in this field and who can contribute to this field and also local graduates. And the third thing that I kind of took away, of course, is the variety of projects that you've supported. I mean, just three examples that you gave, you know, one was electric vehicles, the other was productive use of energy, and then the other was finance and facility. In particular, I'm, of course, very happy that, that you talked about Charm Impact because Gabrielle was on our podcast uh, about a year back, actually. Obviously, this is very good news. We will now move over to offshore wind, completely different sector. You will have to start off with the introduction of your work there. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. It's a very different space from the energy access space. It's much more kind of a large engineering focus. A lot of the kind of heavy maritime engineering uh, infrastructure-based problems and, and indeed solutions. And, and it's a very different market, much more centralized with very large stakeholders involved. So the Carbon Trust has been involved in the offshore wind space since around 2008. Really, that's kind of almost as a boon of the sort of history by which we were established originally uh, and our corporate approach and the sort of mission and impact driven, really impact driven. We realized quite early on that we could really contribute to this nascent sector as it was at the time by providing a kind of cross-disciplinary platform for developers and other stakeholders to collaborate and communicate on kind of communal sector-wide problems of which there were many. So we did this by establishing what was and is called the Offshore Wind Accelerator and that was our kind of flagship program particularly focusing on bottom fixed wind turbines and this model essentially is quite straightforward. We have 
offshore wind developers that we know have common challenges they face in areas like cabling, electrical systems, foundations and logistics, operations, some of the yield performance activities. We individually solving those problems might be sort of not really cost competitive or logistically viable for like I said, things like standards for boat landings or something. So we've managed to attract and keep, I think it's nine or so different large offshore wind farm sort of owner developers at the moment uh, to the table. We work collectively with those to resolve some of these communal challenges, really. And now those nine offshore wind farm owners represent around 75% of, of the European offshore wind fleet already. So it's a really high market pull for people to engage with those stakeholders, really. They what they do is they put in an annual fund to be involved in, in this accelerator. The UK government backs that funding up a little bit. So there's what that means for the, for the developer for, is that they have essentially a really high value for money on their R&D, where basically every pound that they spend is leveraged by a funding of, of a factor of 10 or so. So it's really quite impactful. You know, what we do then is we have ideation sessions, come up with a roadmap for innovation activity we'd like to fund in any given year, and we tender out research solutions that have been crafted and designed by the consortiums to allow us to basically resolve some of those common problems. So, you know, this can be progressed from a desk-based studies all the way up to large-scale demonstrators. And people that we work with, people who are sort of keen in, and the solution providers are very keen to engage, they, they maintain their own IP, so they have a viable product that they're being funded for. They also have access to what they already know is like sort of a, a large section of the established market who have sort of already voiced that this is a problem that intrinsically needs to be solved. So it's a really kind of almost a kind of common sense uh, way to get to a solution, really, you know. Anyway, so that, that's the accelerator model, at least in the offshore wind accelerator. You know, from the success of these kind of common R&D projects, we've now kind of got several other ranges of activities that we're undertaking. We do discretionary projects, which is where not all partners might went to it engage in them so we they tend to last for several years and be multi-million pound projects looking at larger things like fabrication facilities and things like that we are now looking at floating wind as a joint industry project which has come along leaps and bounds and and is now probably in a stage that's fairly similar to where the original offshore wind accelerator was we look at uh, the offshore winds joint industry project renewables joint industry project which is looking more environmental elements and then more recently we've started a a program called the integrator which is designed examining some of the interplays within offshore wind and existing infrastructure such as kind of the onshore elements such as the, the main transmission grid and the regulations around that really to try and highlight opportunities for innovation and investment that is quite a lot actually so i'll try and unravel some of this obviously what you call the communal problems, the common problems across the major developers uh, working on that can you give us a few examples on big challenges that you solved and i suppose that essentially led to the fall of offshore wind prices, right? Yeah, so maybe before I go into some of the details of those individual projects, I'll have to talk to you a little bit more about some macro elements of what's going on in terms of the, the offshore wind sector. As I said, we've been working in it since about 2008. Prices then were around £170 per megawatt hour. That was the expectations for offshore wind slightly around that area, possibly more. Offshore wind costs have dropped significantly, and I don't think anybody expected this. Over the last five years, it's been a real kind of black swan event. The incredible decrease in price on offshore wind now it's below around 50 megawatts per hour so it's really becoming a super sort of viable technology solution for for many instances and for many countries where they have the resource and availability now obviously we don't take credit for that as in the offshore wind accelerator work but we have done some pretty detailed calculations and findings which i think conservatively would say we estimate around 15 percent of that cost reduction has probably been helped and supported through um, the offshore wind program and it's targeted technology innovation for cost reduction. So to date, there's been around £100 million spent 
on the offshore wind accelerator, which sounds like a, a large amount of money. Uh, but we think that as a result of this year, probably have a cost saving around £34 billion by 2030. So it's a orders of magnitude more. You know, that's assuming we manage to hit our growth targets for European deployment of around 60 gigawatts by 2030. Really impactful, you know, to get in at the early stage of technology maturation and, and make those in- incremental innovation can really help reduce the trajectory of cost um, in the long term significantly, especially when you're dealing with something as large as the offshore wind side of things. Now, I think the other thing that's worth bearing in mind is that what we've really sort of seen is the collectivization of the stakeholders in the platform that government and companies and industries can see uh, has got its act together is really certainly in the early days helped to kind of legitimize the sector a little bit more and provide a kind of platform for many of the challenges to be resolved like the environmental considerations and a bit more of a voice for the sector so that's i think been really valuable as well and i'm hearing you speak obviously one of the things that managing the offshore wind accelerator required is a combination of economics combination of project management also technical issues right technical management and technical design just Curious, when you staffed the offshore wind accelerator from a carbon trust perspective, which skill set were you kind of heavy on? The project management or more the technology side? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. It's uh, it's a bit of a mix. I mean, my own background, I have, as I said, a sort of PhD in renewable energy, particularly focusing on offshore wave and tidal. And I had a an engineering background before that. I think many of the people that go into the offshore wind accelerator from a carbon trust side of things in terms of the coordination come from a technical background everybody obviously at the carbon trust is very passionate in the decarbonizing agenda ironically enough though one of the sort of virtues of what we provide is that we, we don't have skin in the game in terms of the solutions that are being found or the technologies that are being found we work with technical working groups made up of the um, representation from the, the developers that are in, involved in the offshore wind accelerator they provide all the sort of core technical impetus now we have to have a technical understanding to be able to write the tender documents and host the meetings and coordinate the delivery such that it meets the output requirements of our clients. But essentially, we very consciously don't provide the solutions ourselves. So we don't do things, these things in-house historically, within the well, at least within the offshore wind accelerator model, because we don't want to conflict ourselves in any respect. I think I would have to say it's probably more product management and stakeholder management and communication skills that are probably more critical to the type of work people do when they're engaged in the offshore wind accelerator. But they have mostly strong technical background. I get that. That is interesting. And I really like the way you kind of frame the overall picture. You know, very quickly, are there any examples of big technical issues that you want to highlight, which really led to the drastic reduction in cost before we move on? Uh, there's not been a single silver bullet. And actually, it's not even been just technology solutions that have been a part of that. Some of it's been about contracting and risk, as we're seeing offshore wind that's now been in situ for you know, over a decade, there's a much clearer understanding of what the liabilities and risks are. So insurance premiums are going down. There's a much better understanding of the yields and the resource availability and how that is over time. So I think that there's just a dampening down and an understanding of what's actually going on and where originally I think it was probably quite high risk and that created um, obviously an increase in the capital. From a technology side of things, there's quite a few different things and I have to go into some of those. We work on several areas. The discretionary projects are probably a bit more relevant to some of these ones because they tend to be the larger problem solutions. They could be all sorts of things, really. I mean, as it within the electrical systems, for example, we're looking now at a high voltage array systems activity. So the turbines are moving ever larger and that's another reason why the, the costs are coming down. We're seeing sort of 15 megawatt plus turbines now being put into the sea, which are 
are just ginormous beasts. They have blades of around 230 meters or so in diameter. So really kind of towering edifices. And the interarray connectivity between the turbines has itself a voltage loss. They need to be spaced out quite a way. Originally, when we were starting to work in this space, people were working, working with 33 kilovolt interarray cabling. We actually undertook work within the offshore wind accelerator to, to, to validate and look at moving to 66 kV, which is much more of a standard these days. We're now actually starting a, a discretionary project called the High Voltage Array Systems, which is really looking to investigate the feasibility and study higher voltage systems. So that is potentially moving up to 132 kilovolt array systems, really scaling things up. There's a lot of stakeholder engagement in that. Obviously, it needs to be done, market and uh, literature reviews, as well as regulations and standards, a lot of engineering design and studies for the high voltage array components. Some of those kind of life cycle cost benefit analysis is that you'd need to undertake to really understand how that works. We know that the scale of turbines, uh, the size of turbines is, is getting larger and larger. We have to kind of make sure that supporting elements around the sort of balance and plant and the transmission and things around that scales with it and as i said this is one of those things where it's in everybody's collective interest to work on this problems as to find a solution rather than any particular offshore wind developer coming up with a solution that works just for themselves you know and one topic that i'm particularly fascinated about which you brought up very quickly is the understanding and mitigating the potentially negative impact uh, of offshore wind on environmental and social potentially negative environmental and social impacts of offshore wind. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So again, coming from where we sort of were back in 2008, there's been a vast amount of research into this. And it's one of those things that everybody wants to make sure that we do right. Nobody gets into the into the offshore wind or indeed the renewable space with an ambition to do any, any harm to the environment. So I think there was a collective real desire to kind of try to look at and better understand and refine some of the environmental impacts of offshore winds that brought the offshore wind joint industry program together originally it was in 2012 the first stage was conducted and that looked into sort of acoustic deterrence for marine life as well as a lot of work and this is probably the, the larger piece of uh, delivery with the the audit work is looking at kind of seabird behavior around offshore winds and uh, and the flight paths around that and that's really led to where we are now in stage two, which kicked off in about 2019, go till next year, 2023. That's looking at a wider range, a wide range of environmental considerations. Again, predominantly seabird behavior. So several projects on seabirds related to the tracking of seabird by migration, for example, or displacement of seabird nesting sites as a result of offshore wind farms, really trying to get a better understanding of how seabirds move and relate around wind farms and like what if any impact it might have to them there are other considerations for offshore wind cable protection measures making sure that it has a minimal effect on the marine ecology noise of the turbines themselves uh, and indeed the noise when you're fabricating and uh, building these offshore wind turbines so there are still kind of a lot of environmental aspects that are being explored and investigated in there where we're trying to kind of come up with communal understandings that can really help to mitigate and reduce any impacts that might be around so all of this sort of activity is building a kind of towards a communal narrative of the long-term environmental effects of offshore wind that, that we can really help to reduce and on the floating wind side you are actually working with the scottish government yeah, floating wind, as I said, is an interesting one. It's, it's a bit behind fixed wind as a technology. We're now moving from pilot demonstration towards more kind of pre-commercial arrays. 2016 saw the 
the High Wind array in Scotland as well. So Kincard, Cardinal, which has been done this year, each of those are five turbines each. So we're starting to see early kind of pre-commercial arrays going on. In the sort of industrialization needs to move to really the dramatic cost savings and reduction that we're seeing of the scale at the moment for offshore wind for the fixed bottom ones. And again, 15 megawatt turbines with about 230 meter blade diameters, absolutely ginormous beast. These some of these things, and we're moving towards 18 megawatts as well. Even so, you know, you talk about what's happened in the cost reduction over the last five years. I think that increase once we got above 10 megawatts, it was amazing how quickly it kept going, and the, and the technology kept um, scaling, which really does help reduce the cost. So, in terms of our own history. The floating wind joint JIP was set up in 2016. Stage one was really a feasibility study, and that was that was exactly what it was really working out: is this something that's ever going to work? And you know, there's such a lot of complexity when you're dealing with a floating wind turbine in terms of the sort of aero hydrodynamic loading from both wind, marine on the structure, and the moorings. There's, there was lots of environmental considerations. There was even resourcing considerations as to where the best sites might be for these things. Um, we're, we're moving forward a little bit. There's been progress since then. We've sort of stage two was set up in 2016 and was overcoming more technical challenges. And now we're into stage stage three, which is a four-year technical challenges uh, activity. It works with 17 offshore wind partners. So really the, the bulk of the offshore wind floating offshore wind stakeholders, I'd say. That was, so, so in 2019... There's about one million pounds that's being supported into four t- key target areas, really, within the f- floating offshore wind that's unique to their challenges. And that's moorings, monitoring, towing to port, and heavy lifting. So we've got eight projects within those four key targets areas that are being uh, investigated at various stages from kind of, I guess, some more desk based to being more kind of test and demonstration type activities. And on the linkages side, you've just started a project on the hydrogen offshore wind linkage, I suppose. And the UK government has just come out with the green hydrogen policy as well. Indeed. So looking at the hydrogen offshore wind is part of the integrator program. The integrator program is funded by seven of the offshore wind farm developers. And in the hydrogen project, this started in July this year and is looking to deliver into May next year. And it's really taking a deeper dive into some of the technical challenges and considerations for integrating hydrogen production with an offshore wind farm. So some of the challenges are looking at how to configure the hydrogen electrolysis and so the electrolyzers in relationship to the offshore wind farm, where you could have several different options, one of which being small electrolyzers on the offshore wind platform itself for each individual wind turbine. You could have a larger hydrogen electrolyzer on an offshore wind platform of its own within the offshore wind array. Or indeed, you could push electricity back to shore and then have a an onshore hydrogen electrolyzer which has various sort of technoeconomic considerations so if you were to do it onshore you would have to have a larger export grid uh, export um, transmission cable going from the wind farm to the shoreline and then you also have to think about where the sort of energy vectors go in terms of whether it's most useful to have the hydrogen produced onshore or at an offshore station where you platform where you could potentially ship it somewhere easier so there's a lot of factors to be considered in there and some of those key key factors that we're looking into i suppose really and some of those could be on site regulations for example connecting to the grid and how much that costs more or less to have the larger um, transmission so the output of that will be a kind of cost model some analysis that looks into these different options and you can also link the offshore wind to other infrastructure right sure 
there's actually a second project within the um, the integrator program that's um, not looking at hydrogen. It's called the Roadmap to Power to X. So Roadmap to Power to X, where X could be hydrogen, it could be onshore battery storage, it could be sort of co-located demand, so like large factories that's kind of close to shore. And that's started in July, finishing in, in February time, I believe. And, and that's looking at sort of, again, into the connectivity to the grid as a potential what the challenges are from a regulation perspective, how we might manage that integration to to best suit the optimization from a production and generation capacity perspective, but also kind of, I suppose, from a from an energy vector perspective, like having the hydrogen uh, or the battery storage on the ground rather than, you know, in a, in a uh, the offshore wind farm where it can be shipped away, for example. So a lot of re- looking into the regulations to see which is the optimum within that. And both of those, the hydrogen project and the roadmap to power X project are part of like the integrated program, which is one of, you know, like I said, I mentioned before, actually it's one of our smaller programs, but within the offshore wind, but it's a, it's a fairly new one. Yeah. A smaller project, but uh, I have a suspicion it'll probably grow in the next few years. I will try and sum up some of the takeaways from this section, because this was fascinating. I think one takeaway, obviously, is the active participation of the industry players, your ability as Carbon Trust to bring the players to the table for them to see value, for them to collaborate, because I suppose they are all competitors. You know, your ability to bring in the project management and some amount of technical understanding skills to be able to identify common challenges, do feasibility analysis, which are beyond the scope of individual companies, but which all benefit all the companies at one broad brush stroke. That, that to me is a real core takeaway of your approach, which is of course, you know, very unique in that respect. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, it's, it's really that co-convening and co-creating something that's not as easy as you'd imagine in terms of setting it up, making sure everyone's working from the same premises, looking after the vested interested. It's amazing how useful and kind of, I guess, open to collaboration these product partners are when they're looking at uh, doing what they're doing everyone kind of gets excited about the opportunities to to reduce costs collectively i suppose we've now got not just the mechanism and the sort of or the mechanistic approach to how we deliver this model but we've also got the pedigree of having been doing it now for so long that we have a good bank of knowledge resources outputs and not that we can build on so we kind of also act as a collective repository for that innovation that's already happened as well and and we have a really i guess a, a really good eye on what's going on within the sector and the market more broadly that we can help to inform the decisions of the of the solutions that we're looking to find wonderful with that my final question is if there are other organizations who want to get in touch with you how should they yeah, that's a very good question. I think mainly looking at our website, there's various different links there to the different subgroups. As I said, the Carbon Trust does an awful lot of activity, so it's about finding the right <laughs> the right people in the right particular area of interest that you have on that. So the Carbon Trust website is probably the main one, www.carbontrust.com, and you should be able to find the direction to where you need from there. Right, but if in particular they want to get in touch with you on the with you personally on the Powering Renewable Energy Opportunities Project or the T Project, maybe you want to give yeah, some more. Sh- yeah, sure. So the Powering Renewable Energy Opportunities has its own website, www.prio.org, and you can contact that through contact at prio, P-R-E-O, dot org. And for the Transforming Energy Access, tea.carbontrust.com, 
is the website for that. And again, there's a contact email there, which is tea at carbontrust.com, which is for any inquiries. With that, thank you very much, Angus. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, do visit us on regainparadise.org, regainparadise.com. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, and you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and YouTube.